Coming up, NBA, March Madness, wrestling. It's all next. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game and they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right at first half of the first game. I don't know, West Coast time. That's usually about 5 o'clock, 5.30. Perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. We're also brought to you by The Ringer, a podcast network, put up a new rewatchables. We did Bad Boys, not the one with Will Smith. We already did that one. That's in the archives from 2020. Now, we did Bad Boys from 1983, Sean Penn's breakout movie, a phenomenal movie. It was the 40-year anniversary of this month. This is still my favorite Sean Penn movie. I explained why, and we broke all of it down with my friend Chris Ryan. So look out for that one. Coming up on this podcast, Kevin O'Connor and I are going to talk about the improbable re-rise of the center in the NBA. What is happening? And also, what has happened in the MVP race? Jesus, Jokic and the Nuggets falling apart. And then Tate Frazier, who hosts One Shining Podcast for us, he's going to give us five March Madness bets to hang our hats on. And then last but not least, Brian Gerwitz, who used to work for WWE forever, and went to go work for The Rock. He is a producer on Young Rock, a show that my son loves very much. But he also wrote a book about his time in WWE. And we're going to talk about this whole gambling thing with WWE and everything that's going on with them heading into WrestleMania. So that's last. It's all next. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. <laughs> All right, we're taping this. It is a little past 7 o'clock Pacific time. Just watched the Nuggets lose yet again, this time to Toronto, who did whatever they wanted. They almost had 50 points in the first quarter. Denver's defense has gone south. Jamal Murray has gone south. KOC, what are you more nervous about, the Nuggets one seed or the Jokic MVP bandwagon? which I think is is looking pretty creaky right now. The, the Jokic MVP bandwagon. There's just not enough time for Denver in all likelihood to blow their one seed lead over Memphis or Sacramento, though it is tightening up. The Jokic MVP bandwagon, um, that seems to be uh, going off the road a little bit right now. They're only three up on Memphis in the last column with 13 games to go. And they have some tough ones coming later this month. Like they have a Sixers-Bucks home combo uh, the last weekend of March and that that Monday. 
So I'm going to read you all the teams in the West and we want to, we're going to talk about centers in a second, but just quickly, I just think the West looks pretty drunk right now. And we've had years where it's like, man, who's going to come out of a conference, right? We had the year where the Hawks won 60 games, but we always at least had LeBron as the barometer. This time around, if Denver's, I'm really concerned. I've watched a lot of Nuggets basketball and I really like watching them. And it just, it, the Jamal Murray doesn't look the same to me. He was like five for 19 again today. And defensively, he's really slipped. Um, and they're just getting scored on left and right. And I can't tell if they're just, feel like they've clinched it or if teams have figured something out. Who knows? I'm going to read you all the teams in the West and you tell me how many of them do you think could win, could actually win the West. So we'll, we'll say Denver, yes. Memphis. Yes with Denver, yep. No, until we get clarity with Ja and Steven Adams. Adams out for the rest of the season for them. He's been so critical for them on both ends. And with Ja, we just don't know right now, Bill. So I, I can't. I can't say with any confidence I can talk myself into the Grizzlies winning the finals. They're young anyway, even with those guys. Yeah, I can't write off a two seed, but at the same time, the Joss stuff sounds really concerning. Like, wait, like there's been bits and drabs of information coming out, but um, in the whisper circles, it really doesn't seem like we're going to see him again this season. And we'll find out more information. He, it's not like he has to tell us what's going on, but it seems like this is now a let's all take a break. Let's reassess in a couple of weeks and, and get some help or whatever's going on. And I think they're doing a good thing, not telling us what's happening, but I can't write them off because there's a world where he just comes back in three weeks and he looks good and they have home court advantage in the first two rounds. So I'm like a half yes on them. Sacramento, I think we're both yes, although I, I'm probably a little more excited than you about them. Half-hearted. Um, I mean, like Mahoney came on the mismatch last night because Verno was out and we talked a little bit about the Kings and... With their defense, like it's tough. I mean, like they have the 25th ranked defensive rating. Uh, the Lakers in 01 are the last team that has won the finals having a bottom 10 defensive rating. And with them, like they have Kobe and Shaq, their team that was coasting, going for a repeat, you know, uh, they're over the course of the regular season. The Kings just don't have that upside. Granted, they have the number one offensive rating by far. They can play any style they want to in any series. I don't think their offense is going to slip at all in the playoffs. I just don't think. Their defense is good enough. But with that said, I like you're mentioning you can't write off a two seed. But Sacramento, like they do have a path. I mean, if they win the first round and if depending on what's going on with the with Memphis and John and all that, they could find themselves in a West final. So you you can't rule them out kind of scoring their way to the NBA finals, but it's kind of a half hearted yes on my my side. KOC, you just lost your invite to the light the beam ceremony at the Western <laughs> Finals. Guess who's not invited? You, KFC. Oh, they don't oh want well. you now. I had to earn back you, my you, invite after I tweeted about would, if the Lakers offered both picks and Westbrook for Fox in like October, <laughs> would the Kings just take those picks and start over? And that, Kings fans are still mad about it. You didn't get I a lifetime ban for that, Bill? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm back. I had them. The over was one of my locks of the year. I bet I, I'm in. I had Malik Monk on my podcast. Phoenix, I think, would be a yes for both of us, right? Yeah, definitely. How about Golden State? Yes. Basically looking like a five seed right now where they would have a game seven on the road in every series they play and they are seven and 26 on the road this season. I can't write them off. I can't quit you, Golden State. No, you can't can't quit 
a team with Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson and Draymond Green. We just saw them score 75 points in the first half the other night with Clay Thompson having 33 mm-hmm. and Steph is still Steph. And, and the fact is then with them, Bill, not having Andrew Wiggins is the big reason why I think you can have hesitations. Like we're talking about with Memphis, with Adams and Ja. Wiggins has been their second or third best player, a critical wing defender, super versatile, a knockdown shooter, and he can do what he needs to do for that offense in the half court as a as a scorer off the dribble. So until we find out clarity with Wiggins, um, it's like a get hard to fully buy in with Golden State. Um, but at the same time, it seems like he'll come back, you would think, before the playoffs. Like, like Kerr's comments on Saturday seem to indicate more so we don't know if it'll happen during the regular season. I'm never writing them off, especially after no. last year when I think I wrote them off 17 times. But it's been a pretty, they've been a 500 team for 70 games, basically. Uh, Clippers, can't write them off either. How come? Kawhi and Paul George. I'd like certain lineups that they play when they play man with those guys. I think defensively, they're going to be able to get stops. We know the playoff slows down. And I just can't rule them out yet. It's, I, if, in a weak West, I cannot. I think that's fair because of how flimsy the West is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like what I see from them. I'm not confident. I'm not, this isn't a situation where I'm like, man, it's going to be so cool when the Clippers are in the finals and I can go with my season tickets. I'm not feeling that way at all. And Clippers curse, Clippers history, all that stuff. But I can't it's write them Because of off. Kawhi. Kawhi is the only reason why there's any belief with, with the Clippers. And some vets. Ty Lue yeah. has coached in some games. Yeah, but um, that gets subtracted by Russell Westbrook, the presence of him. Yeah, but I, I feel like he's going to be gone by like April 7th. Or just like, hey, remember when Russell Westbrook was on the Clippers for three weeks? <laughs> Minnesota, I'm writing off. Yeah, fair. Dallas, I'm writing off. Definitely fair. Their defense stinks. Yeah, that, that team doesn't have it. That Kyrie trade's going to be, uh, I think that's going to look like a swollen pulsating zit in about two weeks. <laughs> Lakers, I'm not writing off at 33 and 35. We have no idea if LeBron's coming back this season and yet I can't write them off. And part of me wonders, did you catch that thing where Darvin Ham said LeBron was gone for a week and now he, it's great to have him back with the team? I was like, where did LeBron go? I just feel like, uh, you know, we've seen him kind of ramp up for eight to 10 weeks physically. And maybe that's all he can do at this point. But I keep coming back to the bubble where that long, long break bubble ends and LeBron looks awesome for what was that? Nine, 10 weeks. And could that be lurking this time? Like could, as long as they just get in, could, does he have nine weeks in him? I'm not betting against him. Well, Ham said everything's going according to plan. LeBron's, you know, shooting before the game. He posts the photo on Instagram of him in like a in a hyperbaric chamber, recharging. Yeah. He's coming back. He's going to be the first person to beat plantar fasciitis in like six weeks. It's like a <laughs> six month injury. LeBron's like, no, nah, it did in six weeks. Pelicans writing off. Everyone else in the West writing yeah. off. So we basically had one, two, three for me, four, five. Six, seven teams we could see winning the West. That's insane. Yeah. And I think I had six because I said no on Memphis. Yeah, I had seven. You yeah. had six. Yeah. And and like of those, I mean, the Lakers are the bottom that we're saying yes to, but they're probably not, you know, sixth or seventh on our respective boards. You know, we're talking mm. finals favorites in the West. Are, are they? They're from a Vegas standpoint, they are. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'd probably have them in the in the top five for me just because the rest of the West is so weak. And if they can just time the LeBron AD thing and just get like four weeks out of those guys together, as crazy as that sounds, that might be enough to get them in round three. I just, I have so many questions about whether those guys can stay in the court. Uh, to me, that is, that's even shakier than, am I going to get six more weeks out of Kawhi? Like if I had my injury, who do I believe in the least rankings? I would have both LeBron and AD over Kawhi in, in terms of staying healthy. LeBron after this time off, though? Right. Well, but that's the thing. Fresh off his trip to Germany or wherever, <laughs> wherever, Hyperborea land, wherever the hell he went. But, you know, he's, you know, he's getting all the, uh, all the doctors trying to work on that thing. Um, I'm going to move to big men. This is why I invited you on. I realized something that the center position is kind of back where think back to 2016, they, we had nine 48 win teams and here were the centers on those teams. Golden state. This was the year they won 73 games. Bogut and undersized Draymond Green, not, a, not really a center. San Antonio, Matt Bonner and Boban were their centers. Hmm. They won 67 games. And they, they basically would play, go small with LaMarcus Aldridge. He's not a center. Cleveland, Moscow and Channing Fry, who I think was like part a part-time podcaster at that point. And they would, then they would play Tristan Thompson at center. Toronto, Jonas Valanciunas and Bismack Biombo. That was the freaking Twin Towers compared to the other shit that was going on. OKC, this was the year they had the 3-1 lead in, uh, in the West Finals and then blew it. Steven Adams and Perkins. Like that's like an above average center combo. Perkins was like pretty washed at that point. The Clippers had DeAndre Jordan. Miami had Hassan Whiteside during his one good Hassan Whiteside run. The Celtics, Kelly Olynyk, 48 wins with Kelly Olynyk, And then last but not least, Charlotte won 48 games with the rotation of an aging Al Jefferson, a young Cody Zeller, and uh, the immortal Frank Kaminsky. And those were the nine center combos on the 48 wins we teams we had. The All-NBA that year for centers, Jordan, Cousins, Drummond. <laughs> that was our threesome. All right, now, now fast forward. This year, our top seven teams in order, Milwaukee, Brooke Lopez and, and basically Giannis when he decides he can play there too. Brooke Lopez having an incredible year. Celtics, Horford, Rob Williams, Denver, Jokic, Philly, Embiid. Cleveland, Jared Allen, Memphis, Triple J, Sacramento, Sabonis. Are we a center's league now, KOC? Center's back, baby. It is. I mean, like you didn't even mention like, you know, Mobley next to Allen or, you know, or like, you know, Jackson next to Adams and Mitchell Robinson and Julius Randle or, you know, like right. some of the, the teams that are towards the middle, Clint Capella and John Collins or young teams, the Magic, Wendell Carter and Paolo Bancaro. Like, oh, you're just saying that because Saruti's on this. The next four <laughs> teams in the standings after those seven I gave you, the centers are Nick Claxton. Mitchell Robinson, DeAndre Ayton, and Bam Adebayo. Those guys are really good. Yeah. That's our top 11. It's deep. I mean, like how, how many, like you mentioned that the, the seven years ago, how many teams yeah. were really playing lineups with two bigs? I mean, think about all the combinations right now, like whether it works or doesn't. Like you get the heat going to add Kevin Love because they want to pair him with Bam Adebayo. The Wolves trade a bunch for Rudy Gobert to pair him with Carl Anthony Towns. We haven't really seen it, but 
teams trying to get two bigs, the Cavs with Mobley and Allen, Adams and Jackson on the Grizzlies, Horford and Williams on the Celtics. Like there's a lot of good teams and, you know, middle teams that are rolling out consistently rolling out good quality two man, two big lineups. And that's because of the way bigs have evolved, right? Like it, some of those teams, they're, they're, they're two non shooters. Um, but most of them for them, you know, there's guys that can at least handle from the outside, Bancaro, Mobley, or there's guys who can shoot from the outside, like Jackson with the Grizzlies, Horford with the Celtics, Brooke Lopez, an older guy who has evolved. He's kind of the poster boy of that, in my opinion, considering what he was as a low post guy with the Nets many years ago. And he's become a, one of the better shooting bigs in all of basketball. The position has evolved, and that's what allowed so many teams to continue playing with skill but also now with size. Yeah, centers we didn't mention. I mean, these eight guys might be in the playoffs if things break right. Anthony Davis, you might have heard of him. Rudy Gobert, who Minnesota traded at 100 picks for. Jonas Valanciunas, Steven Adams, if he comes back. Capella, Porzingis, who's averaging 22 and nine for the Wizards. It's a good year for him. Jakob Pertl, who's been really good on Toronto. And uh, Vucevic on Chicago, if they snuck in, he's a 20-a-game guy. I split it into tiers. And we didn't mention Walker Kessler. We didn't mention Miles Turner, who's averaging 18 and eight. Mm. We didn't mention Carl Anthony Towns, who's hurt, but, you know, is, was a possible third-team All-NBA in a different world. Um, Christian Wood is averaging 17 and eight for Dallas. Not even discussed. And then you get into that whole Mitchell Robinson, Mason Plumlee, Kavon Looney, Steven Adams world. And then young guys, Jalen Duran. Shengun, our guy, Kongwu, James Wiseman, and then a bunch of guys coming. So let's go back to Brooke Lopez because I think this is the key to figuring out what the fuck's going on here. So Brooke Lopez comes in the league. Charlotte should have drafted him. They took DJ Augustine over him. They screwed up. He goes, where? who drafted him? I'm blanking. The Nets. With the, the Nets. So he's on the Nets. Has this whole different incarnations of runs with the Nets. Gets pretty close to being a possible finals team. They just couldn't get over the hump. Then they go into the rebuild, ends up on the Lakers for a weird year. And then he just seems like, you know, he's basically one of those guys floating around for the one year, $4 million contract, whatever. But he was a really good inside low post player. And I've talked about this before, but that one of those years, the Celtics had their pick. Lopez was just carrying the nets in these games and in crunch time. And he's just this old school footwork and over the last five years, he's completely redone his uh, his entire resume. He's They space him in the corners. Uh, he still has the ability to bang people down low. He still has the ability to rebound, but he can also play away. And then defensively, he's reinvented himself. And if you watch tape of Brook Lopez 10 years ago to now, it wouldn't look like the same guy except for their heads. You wouldn't <laughs> even know you were watching the same human being. It makes me wonder, like, is Roy Hibbert watching this going, oh, man. Four, if I had just figured out for it, I, I would have been a three-point shooter. Um, but the, his transformation, I think, sums everything up because 10 years ago, you would have wanted him near the basket. Now you want him away from the basket. So I guess my question for you is, the style changes start early 2010s, right? And, and then the Curry era comes in and the three-point shooting and the spacing and the lineup flexibility. Have we just had a long runway now for bigs to figure out how to play this style and that's what's happening? Or do you think we have just more talent and we're in a talent boom? Because to me, maybe it's the style thing more than the talent boom thing. 
I, I think it's more so style. Um, you know, I'm sure the talent boom has something to do with it. Um, but like you think about the older players like Brooke Lopez, he's posting up six, seven, eight times during his 20 point per game seasons with the Nets. And like he's one of the high, you know, most efficient, you know, highest volume post players. He's had time from his mid 20s until now he's 34 years old to work on, you know, translating his touch from, you know, hook shots and, you know, drop steps and, you know, pummeling through contact to now like, okay, how can I make this touch work from three point range? He's always been a good free throw shooter. You know, he's had a little bit of an elbow game, so he's had time to do that. But now you have kids who are 10, 11, 12, 13 years old who are doing that since before they're teenagers. And I, I think, you know, that's that's what's really been happening with a lot of the bigs who come up. I mean, I, when in, in 2016, like your question makes me think about interview I had with Carl Anthony Towns in 2016, my first year with the ringer, I did a story with like the headline, I think like the NBA's big man boom. And we talked to Miles Turner and Carl Anthony Towns and Joel wow. Embiid. And it was like Chris Tapps Porzingis. And like there's, you know, like we said, who were the guys that are going to turn into stars? And Kat, I asked him like, so you shoot a ton of threes. You didn't shoot in, in college because you were told not to, but you shoot a ton of threes now. Who were the guys that you were watching growing up? And he listed like all guards and wings and dirt. Wow. Right. And so I think now you have kids who are growing up watching Brooke Lopez shoot threes, right? Like it's not just Dirk who's doing it anymore. It's not just a, they're not just outliers. It's the norm now. So I think, I think more than anything else, that's what's happened is that players are young and, and, they're watching positionless basketball occur and knowing that regardless of your size, you can do anything on the court and a coach is going to utilize those talents to the fullest. You're not just going to play inside because you're tall anymore. Yeah, just I laid out a whole list and I tried to rank all the centers and I was just stunned by how many good ones there were. Like you could argue Jared Allen isn't one of the top like 14 centers in the league if you really wanted to do different rankings and Somebody like Pirtle might not even be in the top half of starting centers. And now I'm starting to wonder, like you're working on the draft stuff. You had the draft guide for us. Wembenyama is coming into this. And I wonder if he's going to be the face of all of this, right? He's, I don't know what position he is. And I know he doesn't want to be labeled as a center, but he's going to play there. He's going to be a center defensively at the very least. But we also have that Filipowski, Lively, Clowney, Jackson Davis, we might have four more of these, four or five more of these guys coming in and playing next year on top of like the 25 guys we already have. And it makes me wonder, you can really only play one center, right? Unless it's a situation like Triple J where he can play off somebody. But for the most part, these guys have all canceled each other out where you, you know, in the old days you wanted like, oh, you need to have multiple centers and, you know, it's just not like that anymore. And I wonder, like, is it an inefficiency that you can exploit? Or like, I look at the Gobert trade. Was that just a mistake to pay that much for a center when there's so many centers? Like, are there so many in there that you actually, you can just get them on the cheap, almost like running backs in the NFL? Is that where we're headed? What do you think of like where we're headed? I mean, I I think, you know, there are a lot of two man, two, two big lineups right now. Um, granted, like it's not like they're two centers, right? Like, like you said, it's a Jackson type of guy who does that. In the case of Rudy Gobert, or Horford, yeah, yeah, Horford, somebody like that. And like in the case of Gobert, I've liked Gobert for years. You know, I I pushed for him to win Defensive Player of the Year. I feel like he is an unbelievable defender in his own right. But 
when you consider he's making $35 million and you see him go from Utah to Minnesota, and then you see Walker Kessler on a rookie contract, you know, produce at a very, very high level as a rookie for the Jazz. I do think it puts into perspective, well, what is the sweet spot of what you want to pay centers? Unless they're a, a primary guy, an Embiid, a Jokic, unless they are like a true potential outlier, like what you hope Evan Mobley turns into as a switchable piece on defense and an initiator on offense, unless you're that, do you want to be more in the Jared Allen, Robert Williams, you know, tier of paying a center? Is there a line so where you're Jared Allen's too much? 20. Robert yeah. Williams is like probably 15 range. Yeah, six, 17, something like that. Like, is, is that where you want to be paying bigs and then try to go cheaper than that unless they're that top level guy? I think that. What would KOC, the GM, do? What would you do if you're building a team? Would you just get like three Mobamba type salaries and throw them all together and try to do like a, do the inefficiency thing? Yeah, I think that's the, that's the sweet spot, like a Jared Allen type. Jared Allen this yeah. year is making $20 million on the button, right? Guys like that. Clint Capella is making $18.7 million. Sabonis, 18.5. Like Steven Adams, 18. I think that's the sweet spot. And then you're distributing salary to the wing and guard spots, your primary initiators on the outside, unless it's, you know, Jokic, unless it's Giannis. Obviously, that goes without saying for right, big salaries. Yeah, for sure. They're just, they're outliers. Well, one thing I wonder, like, and you saw this last year with Jalen Dern, who went, I think, 13th. Oh, he's the pick so got good. traded. Um, you're better off now if it's like outside the top 10 and you can grab a center. Like Kessler, Utah has that dude now for five years, basically, at this ridiculous, it's almost like having a rookie quarterback, yeah. right? They could have a center they could build around for 30 to 35 minutes a game, and he's making like $2 million a year or something. I always wondered why teams didn't roll the dice more with bigger guys the last couple of years. Because I, I felt like in the draft, and we talked about this on some of the draft stuff we did, it felt like in the draft, they were becoming like too, too kind of non-sexy as a pick. People would much rather take these wing guys or point guards that had a chance for the upside. I was like, man, these big guys, at least you know you can get like 15 minutes out of them, you know? And I bet this year, like all those guys you had, you had four centers in the 20s. You had Clowney, 21, Filipowski, 25, Lively, 27, Jackson Davis, 28. And that might rise and fall depending on what happens to the tournament. But I wonder if the if teams will take those guys higher because of what we're talking about. I think especially a guy like Noah Clowney on Alabama, everybody talks about Brennan Miller as the best prospect on that team. But Clowney, you know, he kind of checks the boxes of what we're talking about with somebody who has size. He's 6'10". He has a long wingspan, seven foot two. He's got some bulk. He's got rim protection ability, but he's also versatile on defense. Yeah. He has the ability to step out on the perimeter. And granted, his shot's been up and down this year for Bama. Like He's at least shown the ability to be a competent three-point shooter where if you're projecting forward, he's the type of guy you feel like you could pair him with another big. Like he could play in those two big two big lineups um, that some teams are able to pull off. Same thing with Filipowski. Uh, his perimeter defense needs to improve, but he's seven feet. He's got skills on the perimeter as a handler, DHOs, you know, a developing shot. Some of those guys, I think if you're a team drafting a big, you're not, they're not like the Jalen Duran, Walker Kessler category. That's more Derek Lively with you're like a yeah. rim running, you know, rim protecting center. Um, but those guys, I think, fit the category of those potential one big on the floor or, you know, one of two bigs on the floor. And 
I mean, I, I've bounced like with Clowney. It's interesting. I've bounced around with him. I had him late lottery at one point. I got him 21. Now we'll see he, where he actually ends up. But I think you're on to something there though, Bill. Cause even like you look at last year, Jalen Duran, he's a top high school prospect. He slips out of the top 10. Mark Williams slips out of the lottery. Mark Williams Water- was the one that killed me. That guy, he was oh, so yeah. clearly an NBA player. Now he's totally. starting to show it. And he's been really good for Charlotte ever since he's got an yeah. opportunity. And Walker Kessler slips out of the top 20, despite you know being a great defensive player in high school and college at every level. And now he's automatically one of the better defensive centers in the NBA as a rookie. I mean, his shot blocking is unbelievable. His, right. his ability to read angles is truly elite, never mind for a rookie, he's just awesome. for any center. So even well, that, like, the other Christian piece Kaloko of this, Casey, you need the best players in the league. A lot of them are centers now and big guys. And you actually need, it reminds me of the, in the mid eighties when all of a sudden there was this crazy center run and the, the league was just loaded and everybody was thinking you, you guys like John Konchak, Uwe Blob, Joe Klein, these guys were going to the top 10 because teams were so afraid of everybody else's center. And it was, I remember there was a Sports Illustrated story one year. It was like during the Mikhail Parrish bird heyday. And it was just, and Houston had Samson Olajuwon. It was just like, oh, the centers are back. Here we go. And then it flipped the other way by the early 90s. Then it was like, oh, you need to find a Jordan. Forget about centers. But for the most part, you know, we had that run when Dwight Howard was just winning the All-NBAs year after year after year. Then there was like a little Mark Gasol had the belt for a second. And Joakim Noah had the belt for a second. But for the most part, centers weren't dominant. And now we're in a situation where Jokic and Embiid and Giannis, if you consider him a center, which he, he he's definitely a big. I, he he can know, be a we, small ball center. Like, you know, yeah. like they'll pull that out at some point. But then Sabonis, who is one of the two important guys on that Kings team and so amazing to watch with the guys they have. Like you and Mahoney were talking about the other day. Uh, just about all the different handoff and all the different things he creates. He really is discount Jokic. Um, it does feel like a boom. It feels like a moment. It feels like something. And I wonder, like, uh, will teams react to that this summer based on the success of all the of, of the standings and the centers? Is this the playoffs where it's going to get tested, though? I mean, you think about Golden State, they're going to play small. You know, the Phoenix yep. at some point is going to go with Kevin Durant at the five. They have Aiton. They're going to run with Aiton and Katie a lot, but we will see Katie at the five at some point. In the Eastern Conference, you're going to see a team try to go small against the Sixers. Maybe even in non-Embiid minutes, you'll see them go with P.J. Tucker at the five to try to exploit a bigger team as well. Philly, they, they could do that themselves. Uh, like, is this the year where we kind of see this test of styles where it's bigs and brute size versus that versatility and spacing and, you know, smaller size um, battling it out in the postseason to try to figure out like where we are actually going in the NBA. Cause it feels like right now it's all styles. It's not just, you know, pace and space and all that. It's, it's been good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Uh, I think one of the things I've noticed this season is it's so hard to guard anybody that teams are (laughs) kind of okay. If their big man gets torched in the perimeter, cause it kind of happens to everybody. Defenses need help, Bill. They're waving the white flag right now. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's So we talked about this last week with Jokic. Like, it looks so bad when he's trapped on an island, but it also looks bad when all these other guys are trapped on an island. He just looks like the goofiest. But (laughs) on the flip side, you see when these teams go small, somebody like Sabonis, like, he just bulldozes his way, right? You know, they have that one play where he basically has the top of the foul line, and he just basically, he's like a running back. He just gets to the line. 
BAM is the same way. And I do think teams have gotten better at making teams pay for the small ball stuff. On top of like Draymond was like a generational freak at that to be a small ball center, right? He's one of the best defensive players of the last 20 years. And I think his success at that position made other teams feel like they could emulate it. But I don't know if he was emulatable. P.J. Tucker was able to do it somewhat on Houston and things like that. Grant Williams has been able to do it in some situations in Boston. But for the most part, Draymond is kind of a one-on-one. So I think it's coming back. And, you know, we, we could be in a situation where we could have, if Philly gets the two seed, which is very probable considering the Celtics got bit by a rattlesnake, um, we could have Milwaukee, Boston, Denver, Sacramento could be our final four. And it would be all centers. And it, which it's the first time that's happened in forever. Again, in 2016, it was Bogut. It was... uh it was the Moscow Fry combo. It was the Adams Perkins combo, and uh, and Jonas Valanciunas and Biombo, and those were all the centers we had in the final four of a of a playoff. So, um, wait before we go, you move Scoot down to three, and you move Brandon Miller up to two. Tate yep. and I are going to talk about this in a second. Um, just give us your twenty second rationale for this. Are you just trying to get clicks? Are you Kevin O clicks on this? Or <laughs> You really believe it. Definitely. I mean, I haven't been on Brandon Miller since November when Kyle Mann and I were talking about, hey, this was like a top five guy. And then it becomes a three guy. And now it's two on my board. It, it's just, it's a lot harder to find a six foot nine, do it all wing who can shoot at an elite level and play make and brings versatile defense and hustle and takes charges and gets chased down blocks. It's a lot harder to find that guy than it is a six foot one smaller guard with questions about their shooting. I love Scoot. He's got a lot of playmaking skill. He's a hustler. Like he's, he's only got, six one. Six one, six two. Like we'll get an official measurement Ooh. later this year, but and he's long. So he looks bigger, right? He's strong. He's got good length. His body's a lot, unbelievable. I mean, like we're talking about how many good bigs there are. There are also a lot of great guards. And I, I it's a lot harder to find those great wings than it is to find good guards and good centers right now. So you know, that, that's, you're that's speaking my language on this, because we've talked about this in the past. If I'm taking a point guard over a guaranteed wing, that point guard better be, I better know that guy's going first team all NBA at some point in his career, or second team all NBA at worst. There's so many good point guards, right? I mean, they're all over the place. Whereas like, you're right. Somebody like Miller is so much harder to find. To me, it's like, I can see the number two thing for him. If we think he's a rich man's Paul George, if it's like Paul George 2.0, something like that, all the stuff Paul George brought to the table, but with more, just more of a scorer's mentality. George didn't score really for the first few years of his career, right? It kind of eased into it, kind of added to it a little like Jalen Brown. This guy's going to come in and score immediately, which I think is the difference. The one interesting thing about that though, Bill, is I interviewed Miller back in December. It was before Alabama and Houston played. And Miller said to me, he's like, I think of myself as a point guard. I prefer to pass you know, hmm. than I do scoring. And I think we, over the course of the season, that's one of the things Kyle and I liked about him on the, the draft show earlier in the year. You're like, he can, he can play make like you see, and he gets pressured in the pick and roll. We'd find the open teammate. He showed patience. He's shown that over the course of the season, when he's pressured and the scoring at score first option is taken away, he can create for others. So with him, I wonder if like, that's actually the untapped skill that, over the course of time, the NBA, he's going to score first. He's going to be a flourishing spot-up shooter, attacking closeouts and all that. But I wonder if his handle continues developing. There's more to him as a passer than people are talking about right now, considering how much that's not part of his role at scoring. So you think his ceiling 
first team all NBA for you. Yeah, first, second. I wouldn't rule that out with him. He just he's just a do it all guy. Like t- like Tatum level kind of when Tatum was coming out, like, oh my God, this guy has first team yeah. he's, ceiling. He's a, a do it all guy. Yeah. Scoot, first team or second team ceiling for you? Depends on the jumper. It does. Okay. Like, it, it, it all depends on that. Like he's right now, he I wouldn't put him considering how deep the league is as like a second team ceiling guy. But if the jumper develops, then sure, definitely he could be a first team guy. Like that's that's going to be the make or break skill. KOC, you are uh, you're grinding for us during March Madness NBA playoffs coming up. Listen to you on the Ringer NBA Draft Show, the mismatch. Um, we have some other good stuff cooking mm-hmm. that we're going to announce pretty soon, but good to see you as always. Are you proud of me for not bringing up the Celtics and how traumatized I am by them? Because <laughs> I'm proud of myself. Bill, you, you should be super proud. We only mentioned the Celtics in passing, talking about their two big lineups. I, I'm very proud can of I you. Ask, can I ask you a question? How many times can my I'm dad not proud text anymore, me? <laughs> no, can, how many times can he text me why Derek White isn't in a crunch time over Marcus Smart before? Is there like a shortcut for the text where it's one button and he just sends it to me? And it's just a complete sentence. Yeah, he I'm going to figure like, that out after the podcast. He's like a hot, a hot key to send that out. Yeah. <laughs> what happened to maybe, Marcus Smart? Maybe, Is he 45 years old? What happened to him? Maybe he has it like on a, on a note. He just copy and pastes it every time. <laughs> I, I mean, it would be the right, it'd be smart to do. It's an every night thing. I don't understand why he's aged 10 years in the last seven months, Marcus Smart. <laughs> I don't understand it. I don't understand what happened to Grant Williams who no longer plays. And Rob Williams... Is I don't know. Is in the is he in the Bahamas? These were three of the key guys in the finals team last year. I don't want to talk about this. KOC, great to see you. Thank you, Bill. Hey, sports fans, the wait is finally over. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, now live in my favorite state of all fifty states, Massachusetts. New customers in Massachusetts can get into the action with two hundred dollars in bonus bets guaranteed when you place your first five dollar bet. All you have to do is sign up at FanDuel.com slash BS, money lines, point spreads, player props, more. Wednesdays, I like to do same game parlays with the NBA on my Twitter feed. Bet now on an app that's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Don't miss your chance to get $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. Visit fanduel.com slash BS and make every moment more in America's number one sports book. You must be 21 plus and president of Massachusetts. First online real money wager, only $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car, or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm, is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is supported by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, 
there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. All right, my old friend Tate Frazier is here. He hosts One Shining Podcast for The Ringer. Once upon a time, he was my producer. And I think I made you fill out my son's bracket one year. And guess what, Tate? It's going to happen again. He's asked yes. for help for his bracket. And now that you're back at The Ringer, you get to help my son do his bracket again down the road. So we'll talk about that offline. But it's great to have you back. Yeah, I'm fired up and uh, I'm always ready to be the fall guy in March. You know, there's a lot of people that don't talk to me all year. And then in March, they come around and they say, who's good this year? Who should I bet on? And then uh, I'm ready to stick my neck out, say who is good and then uh, look like an idiot when it all falls apart because these are college kids. We know how it goes, but it's always fun. I had a run in the, all the way through the 2000s when I still actually watch college basketball when people <laughs> would ask me for advice and it yeah. would always be the wrong advice. And that pool slowly dwindled. Then it became like my wife's friends. Like, hey, can you? And now nobody asks me because I think the word is out in the street that I don't really watch college basketball. You're an basketball. NBA guy. That's what everybody I'm knows. an NBA yeah. guy. Right. right. I look at, I'm, as I'm I've said many times, well, I look at the NBA as like the like the real world, the way it used to feed into the real world road rules challenge. <laughs> That's all I see it. I just see it as a feeder system to the bigger league. But it's interesting because the way the uh, way the college hoops has shifted and you know, we have more European prospects and foreign prospects and we have people just going right to the G League and all these different things. Like from a talent standpoint, it actually feels like it's going back to where it used to be where I grew up. Like the giant guy in Purdue. We used to have a lot of that stuff in the 70s and 80s. We used to have giant guys and little guys. And so are, are we back or we get back to being like a normal sport, you think? I feel like the NIL era was uh, was the way for people to put their foot back into the pool and say, I don't know, maybe college basketball is fun. I don't feel as egregious about watching and supporting this because now it looks like guys can get some compensation for what they're doing. So that was a nice start. Um, obviously, the biggest star in college basketball this year, there's a bit of a black mark there with Brandon Miller. Brandon Miller is... <laughs> You know, I mean, an absolute superstar when it comes to the basketball court. But we have to, you know, for whatever reason in college basketball, there seems to always be some sort of cloud um, where scrutiny is obviously deserved. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. But you talked about the characters. I mean, Zach Eady is a guy that, you know, is getting Yao Ming comparisons. He's dominating right now. He's kind of playing his best basketball. He also started playing basketball late when he was around 15 years old. I always love, you know, guys like that as they develop. You know, Joel Embiid was one of those guys. So, I look at Zach Eady. He's a fun story in college basketball. And then you got guys like, you know, with this Kansas team, um, you know, a Grady Dick who might be under the radar right now. If you don't know the name, you probably will very soon. But he's going to be an NBA type player. He's going to be a guy I've seen, you know, mocked in, in lottery, maybe 15, somewhere in that range. So Grady Dick, is. there's still guys in college basketball that are NBA potential stars that are coming out. So that's the good news. I was worried about, you know, Win Binyama and Scoot Henderson, but then I saw Scoot Henderson sitting out the G League. So I, I think that might be good as well for college basketball because you can't sit out college basketball unless you're Jalen Johnson. Give me narratives. You, you've been on One Shining Pod. You've been on the number one narrative, which is this is Jim Nance last year. He went <laughs> to Houston. Houston is favored. 
What a moment! Exclamation point as Houston winning in Jim Nance's last year. That's actually like the most fun narrative. The weirdest narrative is basically anything with Brandon Miller as some investigation unfolds as the tournament's happening. What other narratives are in play for you? We got the Rictator is back in action. Right. right? We got Rick. Yeah. Rick Patino is matched up against Connecticut in the first round in a 13 4 game. Um, there's a lot of questions as to how invested is Rick Patino in this game because, you know, apparently the St. John's job is just there waiting for him. They got to figure out the particulars and the details. But this is his best Iona team that he's had. Um, Iona last year lost to St. Peter's, who goes into the tournament and makes an, a run to the Elite Eight, right? So that conference. Oh, yeah. They know they know how to win games in March. Rick Pitino is a really good basketball coach. I also think there's a little bit of a, you know, this is Dan Hurley at UConn. This is the, you know, the son of Bob Hurley Sr. And Rick Pitino is more in the class with Bob Hurley Sr. than he is with Dan Hurley. So I, I have a, a, a weird anticipation, anxiety almost, that there's going to be a master um, versus the student moment in this game, right? Mm. Where Rick Pitino is able to steal one. Um, but UConn well, is wait, a really- wait, hold on. I'm Pitino. So you think he's got St. John's in his back pocket and he's yeah. on Redfin looking at New York apartments, <laughs> but then he's going into the locker room with the Iona kids being like, I love it here. You guys are the best. I'm not going anywhere because we've seen him do the Pinocchio routine for 35 solid years at this point. <laughs> well, this is the classic Rick Pitino rope dope This is what he does. We we know that, I mean, out on the recruiting trails, you know, I've talked to some other coaches and they're like, yeah, we, we go and see players that are more in the, you know, power six, power five programs, but, you know, Iona's there scouting them, so we know that Rick's scouting for the next team, you know, so he, yeah. he knows what he's doing. I think he would have literally done anything to get the Georgetown job because of his, you know, respect for that program. I think that he thinks he could go there and turn them immediately back to who they were before, um, and that's just who Rick Pitino is, but it doesn't sound like Georgetown's going to get in that pool, but we'll see what happens with that, but yeah, when they got St. John's right there, he can play in the Big East. This is really his first Big East game. Uh, if he does end up going to St. John's. So it's him versus UConn. So that's a fun first round matchup. I think I still got the Huskies, though. I think they win that game. He'll spin it if he goes to St. John's as this is the logical conclusion for me. <laughs> Starting in Providence and going to the Knicks, East Coast, St. John's was a superpower. Yeah. I always wondered what if, like he'll come up with some full shit story. I was so desperate for Holy Cross basketball to be good again. <laughs> That I even would have ridden the Patino Express for two years with him as our coach. Because you knew he was going to go somewhere to do the reestablishment, kind of the cleansing, take some team to madness and then leave and go to a real program. I was happy for Holy Cross to be used as the conduit for that, but it turned out to be Iona. I like the idea of him on St. John's, though. Like, like my whole thing is, would that make sports more fun? It probably would. And you have all these St. John's. All these New York people, like when, remember when Molly went there and it was like, yo, Molly's gonna, gonna, <laughs> gonna redo St. John's basketball. It's gonna be back to the glory. Nope, that didn't happen. It is more fun when St. John's is in the mix, it feels like. Yeah. And Steve Lavin tried that too, right? Lavin went there and things went well for a couple years. But, you know, Mike Anderson, even, he started out kind of hot at St. John's. But in my mind, as I close my eyes, I see Rick Patino in a full white suit stalking the MSG sidelines, looking like Lucifer himself. And that is good for basketball. You know, that, <laughs> right. that's what we all want to see, um, especially if St. John's is competing, you know, at the highest level. And they could in the Big East. Like, he's going to recruit New York. He, he was born yeah. in Manhattan, he was raised in Long Island. He is a man of New York City. So, Rick Patino, oh, he'll be spin fine. it. <laughs> I think that Georgetown, that Georgetown job is unbelievable. Yes. And they basically just threw away the last six years with Patrick Ewing. But you would think like one of these schools could be positioned as East Coast Duke, right? Mm. 
and it's just been sitting there. It's something I certainly was hoping Holy Cross could potentially pull off and it's just never going to happen. But for the most part, like so many states from Washington all the way to Maine, so many colleges and like who's kind of the alpha dog smart school that has great basketball. It's just been, the territory has been sitting there forever. Gonzaga has somehow claimed the Pacific Northwest. You know, people have claimed turf. And in the East Coast, who is it? Yeah, I think the Georgetown job, just because of the facilities and the money that, that is already there that can be pumped into it and the need for them to be good, like the, the university wants the basketball program to be respected. I think they're going to go after, you know, a, a guy like a Micah Shrewsbury at a Penn State. Um, mm. You know, that that's a name that I've heard thrown out there. I've even heard a name Shaka Smart thrown out there. Shaka had an amazing year at Marquette. I don't see Shaka making that move. Um, Mike Bray is another name that I think would be fascinating just because Bray just left Notre Dame after 23 years. Bray is a guy that grew up, you know, recruiting in the DMV, coached in the DMV with Morgan Wooten, um, you know, at DeMatha High School. So he knows that area. Uh, so, I mean, Georgetown can go a lot of different ways with this move. Um, I like Ron Hunter as well at Tulane. Remember Ron Hunter from Georgia Southern with RJ Hunter, that tournament run. That was a lot of fun. Oh, so, yeah, I, mean, I remember that. Right. Georgetown could go a lot of different ways and there's a lot of interest in the job. So if you're George, if you're a Georgetown fan or student, you're excited about that because you've been the basement dweller of the Big East for the past, you know, however many years other than that one Big East tournament run that felt like Big John. It was angels in the outfield, right? When they won that Big East right. tournament, that was insane. Um, so I think it's a highly desired job, and I still think they should have considered Rick Pitino more because if they if they did bring Rick Pitino, I think they'd win a national. They could win a national championship. Um, and people That'd forget. Be amazing. I mean, Patrick Ewing went to three national championship games. He only won one, but he went to three. And you know, eighty two was a Jordan shot away, um, and a late turnover away. And eighty five is a Villanova team that knew them so well, and Raleigh Massimino coaching the game of his life. So, I mean, Patrick Ewing and Big John could have won three titles in four years. So that the, well, they, they could, also had the the Matumbo morning era, even though it didn't produce what everybody thought. It was still incredibly relevant during a time right. when everybody loved college hoops. I. The thing with me, I, I guess we might have shortchanged Villanova as the smart school in the East Coast with good basketball, but I didn't want to give that to the people of extended <laughs> Philadelphia. I just didn't. <laughs> Screw them. They can I go think, fuck uh, off. They're I think still Villanova, rubbing the Super Bowl, the Nick Foles Super Bowl in my face. I'm not giving it to them. Yeah, Villanova is like a blue blood, but maybe lowercase letters. You know, that's where they kind of are. But uh, right, yeah, Georgetown they, to me is higher case letters in a lot of ways just because of what the 80s meant. Mm -hmm. They were the school in the eighties. They, it was them and it was for the East coast. And then, you know, you had the other ones that are still kicking around, but I, it's hard for me to believe Georgetown's not just always great at basketball. Right. They should be. It should be a, a foregone conclusion that Georgetown competes. And guess what? They have the best brand in basketball. They have Nike, which is Jordan. You know, Jordan is a vanity brand of Nike. Right. So they have the perfect pipeline to recruit there. They have the Jordan brand classic. They should have guys every single year. And even when I was coming up, you know, Georgetown with Roy Hibbert and Jeff Green, all those teams were good. I mean, even Otto Porter, right? right? They still had guys in the modern-ish era that that were there competing at a high level. So. They can do it. I like I how George you pulled it when back. I was coming up. Ha by the way, happy birthday. Tate turned 30 today. Yeah. He's in his 30s. <laughs> Pretty soon, just find somebody, get married, have a couple kids, get yeah. a pot belly. It'll be great. I can't wait it's, to welcome you to your late 30s. The pot belly's starting. It's all happening. So here we go. Great. I'm, I'm, I'm excited, excited for it. you. All right. We're going <laughs> to count down. You're going to give us five bets in reverse order from five to one right. that we can look at for March Madness. All of these are, are bets that we found on FanDuel. And 
Um, you can still place them. We're taping this on a Tuesday afternoon. So if the odds have shifted a little bit since you hear this, uh, don't blame us. Anyway, what do you have right. for number five? Yeah, number five is an easy one. And it's it's a way to start in and, and ease into the conversation because it's a team to me that's probably the most surefire team in the tournament. And that, of course, is the reigning national champions, the Kansas Jayhawks. Um, this is my first prop pick that you can throw in here. Kansas to make the final four plus 330. Um, Ooh. And I think Kansas coming out of the West, they were the third one seed. They probably should have been the second one seed playing in Kansas City, but Houston got that above them. Kansas leads the country in quad wins. Um, I don't even know if you know what quad wins are, Bill, but that that's what they talk about in college basketball now. It's the worst, it's the worst conversation to ever happen in the entire sport. It sounds talk. awful. I don't even want to know what it means. <laughs> you don't you don't want to know what it means, and I don't want to don't explain tell it me. to you. Yeah, I'm not gonna mystery you. for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Jim Nance sounds disgusted when they bring it up. Like he, he's about to throw oh, yeah. up when he has to say quad. So uh, I feel the same way. But yeah, Kansas, the only concern I have with Kansas is Bill Self had uh, a heart procedure. Um, it oh, was first no. reported as a, a heart attack, but I don't believe it actually uh, ended up being a heart attack. But he had stints put in. That was the report I saw out, out of the Kansas City Star, I believe. And uh, the conversation about this Kansas team was, can they repeat? That's how good they are. That's how dominant they've been. They got Jalen Wilson, you know, going to be first team All-American. They got Grady Dick, one of the best freshmen in the country, a guy that can go off, get you 25, 30 points in a game at any time. They have this guy, KJ Adams, who is six foot seven, but he plays the five and he can mm. guard big men because he, he can, he's got a lot of verticality. He can jump up and, and make plays, but he also can switch anything. Right. So Kansas is just a fascinating team. I think they match up with anybody. Um, and I think they have, they win their matchup pretty much against anybody. I worry about their depth. I worry about a team with a big, like a, a Zach Eady, like we mentioned before, or Arizona with their front court, um, giving them some trouble just because of their size. But I love KJ Adams. I think he's a fascinating player and a, and a fascinating prospect when you look at the NBA. Um, so Kansas at plus 330 to make the final four. I like that bet. So KOC has Grady Dick number nine right now in his guide. Wow. And then the six seven guy you just mentioned sounds like he's my kind of guy. Mm -hmm. I KJ love those Adams. guys. Those multi position defender defender a little undersized, and that's why they drop twelve spots too low. Yeah, and yet somehow they're out there in crunch time in round two, and you're like, oh, of course. Um, okay, what do you have for bet number four? By the yeah. way, the, so wait, can we talk about uh, who's the foiler? Like UCLA and Kansas are co favorites in that region right now, mm -hmm. plus three thirty. But who's the foiler? In your mind, if that Kansas bet doesn't happen, who foils it? Yeah, so UCLA going into the Pac-12 tournament, I would have told you if you asked me who was going to win the national championship, I would have said UCLA. Um, and I would have said that with a good amount of confidence. But they lost Jalen Clark, who's the defensive player of the year. Um, he was one of the best de defenders in college basketball, if not the best defender in college basketball. Him and Hami Hakez on the wing. I just thought that that was a really dynamic duo. The good news for UCLA is that Amari Bailey, who played at Sierra Canyon, has stepped up, um, had 26 points in his first game, you know, with Jalen Clark out. Um, there, there's about, it's about uh, time someone from Sierra Canyon stepped up. Right. There you go. Sorry, yes. I had to get that one in there. They, <laughs> they lost again. Six well, and eight in their last 14 games in high school. So long, wow. Sierra Canyon. 
Yeah, that's insane. And Amari Bailey was the best player on Sierra Canyon last year, but he's been trying to yeah. find his footing with this. You know, Mick Cronin's a, a tough cookie to crack, right, to get in that rotation. He, If he plays well, Amari Bailey in UCLA with Tiger Campbell, Jame Jaquez, um, Adim Bona, their big man, a freshman, the, the freshman of the year in the Pac-12, he's injured as well. So the, the injuries is what is keeping me from picking UCLA, but they're so well coached, they can make a run. And then also I like Gonzaga. If you, I know a lot of people every single year are tired of picking Gonzaga, but Gonzaga at pl- yeah. plus 400. Drew Timmy is still there. Um, if they go out and defend like they... <laughs> That's the best. I love that Drew Timmy's still there. <laughs> He's still so there. Funny. He's still Every there. Every year he- there's the guy who's been in college for eight years. You're like, wait, you're still there? And he, yeah. it's definitely Drew Timmy this year. If, there, if there's someone you want to buy into, it's Drew Timmy. Plus 400 there with Gonzaga. So I think the two teams to watch out for if you don't believe in Kansas or maybe UCLA and Gonzaga. That's kind of a hate using this word, but that's kind of a sexy bracket. <laughs> UCLA, Kansas, Gonzaga. Right. A little St. Mary's action. You got double whack. UConn. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Some stuff going on. All right. What's bet number four? All right. So this is a prop bet. This is just a fun one because he's a fun player and I thought you would enjoy watching him. When he is playing his best, uh, you know, he is a, a great point forward in college basketball. Um, his name is Coleman Hawkins plays for Illinois. He's actually the assist leader on the team, but he's six foot nine. Um, he can, you know, get the ball out, start the break. They play Arkansas uh, on Thursday at 310 Eastern. Um, if he makes three or more threes, you can get a prop bet of plus 430. Um, I've seen Coleman Hawkins make five threes in a first half this season. Um, I think he is a guy that Arkansas is going to play off of um, and they're going to dare him to shoot the basketball. I think Coleman Hawkins will take the threes. And I think they will go in. I'm not saying Illinois is going to win this game because I like Arkansas and I like the must bus. But I think, uh, you know, a little fun prop bet here to watch this game and enjoy it. Uh, Illinois, Coleman Hawkins, plus 430, plus 430 to make three or more threes. I love the bet. I love that you went outside the box. And I love <laughs> the idea of betting against Arkansas because they're salting media members. And I just can't stand for that, Tate. Yeah. Media uh, salt is just, it's a no-no in the, on this podcast. Everyone got so upset about that. Seemed like he just like grabbed the phone and then it kind of dropped. I, w- did anything else happen beyond that? Or but then they were like, oh, he attacked him. He threw his phone. I think it was a lot of grandstanding on on you know the side on the media side of it. But also, I saw Arkansas at the Maui Invitational and they acted like the biggest babies in basketball. I mean, oh, so they might have done it. Okay, yeah, yeah we need yeah. a second angle. Where's the they, second camera angle? Well, they got no benefit of the doubt uh, from my vantage point. I also, yeah. I think the phone was broken. That was the big ordeal. His phone was broken. Uh. So. Look, if you break a phone, I mean, that that's a big deal. So we, so don't we like shouldn't that. do a 10-episode Ringer podcast on this or no? <laughs> uh, like a not? narrative series? I, I was about to hire 13 producers for it. Okay, well, we won't yeah, do that. Yeah, people need it. People need the content. Uh, yeah, but that, All right, that's... Bet number three. What do you All got? Right. Bet number three is also a, an off-the-radar bet, but I really like the Raging Cajuns of Louisiana. Um, so Louisiana is matched up with Tennessee in the first round, and you can take Louisiana straight up money line at plus 490. Um, and Whoa. I'll tell you, yeah, and I tell you why because Rick Barnes is the coach of Tennessee. Uh, Rick Barnes has struggled oh, in March. Dude, come on, you're preaching right. the choir and any anti-Rick Barnes bet, right? And Rick Barnes, he lost to Kai Ziegler. I personally think Zakai Ziegler was the one that initiated and got things going for this team. Um, Tennessee is not the team that they were in January at this point in the season. Louisiana has two guys that are, you know, I, I think could be NBA tweeners, guys that are in the G League. Um, Bob Marlin, their head coach, is a really good head coach. Terrence, Lew- Terrence Lewis is the first guy to watch out for on the wing. 
winning. I saw him at the Asheville Championship this year. He was the MVP of the tournament. They won that tournament. I like teams that win tournaments, Bill. So uh, Louisiana won so, that tournament. So you like wins and losses. That's one of your I, things. I like wins and losses, and I like defense. So uh, Louisiana has my attention. Also, four seeds, they tend to struggle in the tournament the last 10 years. So four seeds are where there's some susceptible teams there. I think Tennessee is not playing their best basketball. I think Louisiana is playing their best basketball. And another guy to watch out for in this game is Jordan Brown. He transferred from Arizona. He's a former four-star. Some say five-star kid. He's got a lot of talent. He's a big man. I like the bigs. Uh, so I like Louisiana uh, plus 490 in this first-round matchup. I love the betting against Rick Barnes part. I w- as you were talking, I was looking at the 07 Longhorns. Kevin Durant and DJ Augustine. Right. Hey, Kevin Durant, who put together one of the greatest individual college seasons of the past 30 years. He's basically like 30 and 10 every game playing center. And he had a point guard. They lost their conference tournament in OT to Oklahoma. Yep. I'm sorry, to Kansas. And then they go into uh, the tournament. They beat New Mexico State as a four seed. And then they lose to USC by 20. The Swaggy P USC team. This was the... It was Taj Gibson. It was Nick Young, Gabe Pruitt. They got murdered. They had Kevin Durant and DJ Augustine. That's it. Rick Barnes, I'm betting against you every every year. That sounds <laughs> also, great, Tate. And also, that's a four seed right there. So like I said, four seeds are susceptible because they're usually a team that's sliding yeah. down uh, as opposed to jumping up. I do think Duke should have been a four seed. I thought they were underseeded as a five seed. Any team that wins the ACC tournament should not be a five seed. So uh, a lot of people know that I have my bias against Duke. Obviously, they're a rival of mine, but... I got to say that for the public. Duke got screwed with their seeding and they're playing Oral Roberts in the first round, Bill. Uh, the hottest team in the country. They've won 17 straight. So uh, just wanted to get Here's that out the thing. There. Here's the thing about you and Duke. Now that Coach K is gone. Right. It's different. You still hate him, but it's different. It's, it's, not, different. it's not the same. You don't have that single person you can direct your right. animosity toward anymore. It's just kind of an amorphous animosity now. It's like if you go to hell and the devil's not there, you know? You're kind of like, yeah, <laughs> like where is he? <laughs> I killed 10 people to get here. I didn't get yeah. to beat them. Yeah, it's just kind of uncomfortable, but you know, it's not the same hate. <laughs> <laughs> All right, your second best bet. What is it? All right, so this is a fun one as well. This is a team. I love history in the tournament, and I love when there's matchups that, that beckon back to, to a pastime in college basketball. So my number two bet is the Kent State Golden Flashes at plus 150. They are matched up against Indiana in the first round in Albany. Uh, And if you remember back in 2002, Antonio Gates with Kent State in the Elite Eight um, had 22 points, eight assists. Kent State, you know, could have won that game. Some would say they, some would say they should have won that game. But uh, Indiana made 15 of 19 threes, which is insane. I mean, what? <laughs> when have we ever seen that sort of percentage again? Shout out to Tom Coverdell, uh, you know, and Jared. Jeffrey oh yeah, from, yeah, I remember for, that team, right? Making that happen, uh, and also Kent State beat Indiana in 2001. Um, so Kent State has some history with Indiana. They're playing in Albany. The head coach of uh, Kent State. He graduated from Albany, so he's kind of playing in familiar territory. Also, he was a coach at Indiana when uh, Kelvin Sampson was there, and he was the one that got fired for the text messages and the phone calls. So he has some personal history with Indiana himself. Uh, Kent State hasn't won a tournament game since 2002 when they lost in the Elite Eight against Indiana. Um, Oh, this is great. And, I love and this. this. Is, and this is also a 413, like I was saying. Uh, you know, the, the 413, they have my attention. So plus 150, um, I'm going to take Kent State. And also the best name in the tournament is uh, Kent State's best player. His name is Sincere Carey. 
Um, and he takes threes. He makes shots. He's a fun player. Very explosive guard. So uh, I like Kent State plus 150. I wonder what if you just bet all the 13s in a 413 money line over the last 20 years. You went at least one one out of the four every year, and you probably hit two out of the four at least in a couple of years. But there's mm. there's no way you got smoked doing that. You probably right. I probably that's a net positive over the years because that's always dating back to the '80s. That was always like the danger matchup four thirteen. Yeah, and I feel like the five twelve got great PR, right? I think the five twelve is what people right. want. They expect that to be the upset. And I think this year there's a lot of trap five twelve games. Like I think a lot of people in America are going to look at Oral Roberts and Duke and say. Oh, yeah, Oral Roberts all day, every day. And I think Duke's going to beat him bad. I really do. So th- there's some trap 512 games that I would like to advise people against. And if Oral Roberts proves, proves me wrong, this is the greatest reverse jinx in history. Well, what happened to those Duke kids that were like one and two in the ESPN Top 100 heading into the season? What happened to them? Well, Derek Lively. Yeah, like, no, Derek Lively is good. He, okay. He's figured it out. He His first game. Uh, against North Carolina in Cameron Indoor, he had about nine blocks. And that was So I was going to say, I watched yeah. one of those games and he was having a block party. And I was like, oh, is this guy, what it, What does this mean? Yeah. But he was the clear number one heading into the season, but it doesn't, it seems like Brandon Miller has ascended way over him. Way over him. I mean, I think Lively is more of a late lottery potential guy that you could take and try to develop, right? I mean, I don't think he's someone that you're writing home about and saying he's going to be an amazing player. Dariq Whitehead still has my attention. I think he's fascinating, but he also has just shown an ability to disappear at times. Proctor, yeah. to me, is their their most fascinating prospect. I mean, Filipowski obviously is in that conversation too, but Proctor is the one. He and Jeremy Roach, they're two guards, that backcourt. They've kind of changed the dynamic of their whole season. Um, and you need guard play and you need defense to win in March, and Duke has that, so that's why Were you okay team. with KOC putting Brandon Miller number two in his draft guide? Absolutely. I mean, I think Brandon Miller, I mean, he is, uh, he's kind of old school in the way that he plays, right? Like he, sometimes his best offense is taking a three and missing because he follows his shot and gets the rebound and gets a bucket, you know, like they, he just does some things like that where it's like, okay, you have my attention. And even when he's not making shots, he'll pick up full court. He'll he'll play defense like he tries to get steals. He tries to get deflections. He's very active um, and he's got a great handle like Jabari Smith last year. We both like Jabari Smith, but I worried about his handle. I worried about his ability to bring the ball up the floor. And when he gets pressure, how does he handle that? Brandon Miller is not afraid of any of those things. So I, I yeah. think him being a number two and with Scoot sitting out of the G League. I don't know. That's kind of a red flag for me. So and Brandon Miller is going to compete. Jabari, I don't know if you. I don't know if your stockbroker was telling you about Jamar, Jabari's last couple games, but there's doing? been some real signs of life. Yeah, he's it's starting to come together. He looked good against the okay. Celtics last night, but he had 30 points a couple games ago. But there's there's some signs. My stockbroker was pleased. I uh, I'm excited. I you and I when we talked about him, it's just he's so fun to watch because he can score at such a high level, and I think he gets the opportunities and gets the shots. He can deliver, but you know. Well, he's on a I'm ridiculous team. You can't pick a worse team to be on than that Rockets team. That it's clear they're going to get rid of everybody after the season. GM, right. coach, everybody. The team that it's just basically whoever has the ball over half court gets to decide what happens, and just a bunch of guys who get, it's spread out. Everybody goes one on one. I would love to see him play with a point guard at some point in his career. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to happen nice. this year, but at some point, it'd be nice if somebody could think about him and have him in his thoughts as they ran a play. Um, but uh, I, from what I've seen, I'm not scared off at all. I think he's been pretty good. And defensively, 
you know, he he's there. So anyway, hold on to your stock. All right, your All number right. one bet, what is it? Yeah, my number one bet is I made it about the national title because I felt like it's the number one pick. So so why not? So I have I have a split national title, uh, you know, options for you. One of them is my head. One of them is my heart. Uh, with my head, I believe the Arizona Wildcats are going to win the national championship. And I say this because I think Arizona is a team that knows how to win tournaments. They went to the Maui Invitational. Um, they did not even play their best basketball. They have a, a proclivity bill to get up in games and then just completely start to coast and just start taking bad shots. And, and they just, you know, they almost toy with the other team. That's my only fear with Arizona. Sometimes they play that way. And the guy that does that, his name is Kirk Creesa. So there is the, a red flag in the sense that I think uh, Kirk one of those uh, guys. I yeah, hate I think, those guys when I, I think when he I, can I'm shoot them somebody. out. Of, yeah, I think he can shoot them out of a game. But I also think they have the 17 year old phenom uh, Boswell, their backup point guard, and I think Boswell can come in, steady the ship, be the actual point guard of this group. And Tubelis, their best player, um, he is a guy that is almost Jokic like, where he can start the break himself. So a lot of the times, you know, Tubelis and Balo, their five man. They play a little high-low game together. He can start to break himself. They can almost take Kirk Creesa out of the game. And if that's how Arizona plays, and I think that's how they will play, that's how they've shown um, that they're going to play in tournament play. And then they have Courtney Ramey, who was at Texas a few years ago. He can get hot, win you some games. Uh, Henderson, as well, is another shooting guard that can get hot, win you some games. Pelly Larson, uh, their small forward, is a guy that KOC and uh, all of our draft experts at the Ringer will have moving up their boards, I think, as the tournament plays out. And you can get them at plus 1,500. I think Arizona at plus 1,500. As a two seed, the last time they went to the national championship and won it in 97, they were uh, in the South region. They're in the South region this year. They beat three one seeds on their path to a national championship. I think that they would potentially have to beat three one seeds to go win the national championship. I think they would have to beat Alabama in the Elite Eight. I think they'd have to beat Purdue in the Final Four. And I think they'd have to beat Kansas in the national championship game. Ooh. So I think it's the same path that Lute had um, back in 1997. So I, I, I like them at plus 1500. And then my heart, by the way, you could go, you could go plus 380 for them just for the region. Oh, Alabama's is plus 150 in that region. But well, just quickly on the Arizona thing, I, I'm with you. Like, it does seem like, like, uh, Brandon Miller, I don't know, on a scale of one to 10 is like a nine for what we're usually getting out of a pro prospect who can score right. coming into the tournament. Like how many times has somebody this talented as a scorer been in the tournament as a freshman? Usually the freshmen are always like works in progress in some way. I mean, you're talking at that point, like Carmelo Anthony. Kevin yeah, that's Durant. what I'm thinking. Yeah, right. Well, Durant's out in two rounds, but Carmelo won the whole thing. And what, whether he's going to be as good as those guys, I have no idea. But the 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 body of resume and the way the scouts and people like KOC are talking about him just projecting, it does seem like the ceiling is there. I can't wait to watch him. Anyway, so what does your heart say? Yeah, I uh, I worry about Alabama. I think Alabama's kind of like I said on my show and one train podcast, they're the elephant in the room, you know? Like they are literally just in the corner. They're the best team in the country by far. They're playing their best basketball and I think everyone is uh expecting Noah Clowney and Brandon Miller and, you know, Bradley to kind of have an off night like what Auburn did against Miami, but I don't know. They scare me. They did lose a game that was weird to Oklahoma this year. I have to point that out because that game sticks in the back of my mind. It is possible. But uh, yeah, they're a scary team. Uh, my heart says that, which is a tough path, but I think the Yukon Huskies are another fascinating team oh. um, at plus 2,500. Um, Yukon went to the Phil Knight Invitational. They won that tournament. 
Um, like I said, I like teams that win tournaments. I like the way that their roster is constructed. Um, I like Sonogo. I like Klingen off the bench. Donovan Klingen, a freshman. They got two seven-footers. I think you're going to need three bigs legit to go win a national championship this year, um, especially if you get matched up with a team like Purdue with Zach Eady. You got to have bodies to throw at him. Um, so I, I like the way that UConn is constructed. I think they got a really tough draw with Iona. Then they would play St. Mary's um, if things shake out the right way in the second round. Randy Bennett, one of the best coaches in the country. That's a tough matchup. But if Dan Hurley can survive those first two games and get to the Sweet 16, I think UConn is a, is a bad matchup for anybody. And when they play good teams, UConn, they play the best of anyone in the country. When they play high-quality uh, basketball, when they play high top quality basketball teams, they play top quality basketball. That's what they're known for. And also, uh, if you want to bet on them, they remind me of the 04 team. Uh, they also have, you know, this guy, Jordan Hawkins, who reminds me of Rip Hamilton. He runs around screens to get open. Yeah. You know, he's a, he's a fun player to watch. He's going to be a first round pick. And also final point, uh, with my heart, Luke Murray, who I'm a big fan of Luke Murray, son of Bill Murray on staff. So Bill Murray is a Husky. Um, you can get behind Bill Murray and Luke Murray and the Huskies at plus 2,500. So there you go. That That's my heart pick. I'm looking to see. Do So Jordan Hawkins, KOC, has him 22nd right now. Calls him a flawless shooter. Bangs threes all over the court. That sounds great. He does. Yeah, Shades he's Shades of Rip Hamilton. Um, I'm, th- I'm thinking narratives for that one. Stan Hurley, what's the narrative as it keeps going? They bring up his, they bring up Bob. The Hurley family saying it like they they get to do that whole thing, right? Right. The, of course. A little in the shadow of since two thousand four, in the shadow of the women's program in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. like kind of the little brother, like the stepbrother. They do that. Vestiges of the Big East way back when, when it matters. <laughs> what is there another narrative school that you could see other than the Jim Nance Houston thing? Is there another one where they'd be like, oh, uh, well, I mean, I, I narrative yeah, the, time. That people gush over. I think Marquette with Shaka Smart is a is a very narrative story. Oh, working right? his way back. He was right. the hot Sha- he was the hot guy. Didn't right. work out. Hiccup to, rebuilt right. it. Right. And Marquette is a team that, you know, with Al McGuire, right? They win the 77 championship. They were they were setting records this year for the first time since that era, you know, since 1979. They win the Big East regular season. They win the Big East tournament. Again, I like teams that win tournaments. Um, so yeah. Shaka Smart uh, w- would be one of those guys um, that that kind of gets the love. I think the media bump and, and he's got uh, cachet with the audience, right? Like we know Shaka Smart. So when Shaka Smart comes back into the conversation, the, the fan at home goes, oh, man, I love VCU. I remember I that, that run. Yeah, 17 exactly. to 1 for them. Plus the big Dahmer, you know, docuseries this year. That was near Marquette. I, I don't know. I'm just trying to come up with other stuff. <laughs> they got the Bucks. Aaron like Rodgers. Wisconsin yeah, needs it after they trade Aaron Rodgers. I feel like there's a chance Giannis is like showing up and pulling for Marquette at the game, right? And, and and there's like they get some sort of push there. That there's a chance that all that works out as well. So I think the Bucks will be behind Marquette. That sounds great. All right, this was <laughs> awesome. So Tate, what's your uh, what's your podcast schedule this week, next week? What are you thinking? Yeah, so we uh, it's one shining podcast. You can find it on Spotify or wherever you get podcasts. Um, we have Ty Jerome. 2019 national champion uh, from Virginia going to come into studio. So we're going to talk to him, try to do like a little tournament primer. What does he see? Mm. Does he think that Virginia can get past Furman? The Paladins look like a very scary team. That's a hot 413 pick that I think, I think Virginia, if if, if I were to, to tell the, the novice fan at home, it's like, don't bet on Virginia to lose in the first round, bet on them to lose in the second round. Um, so I think they'll beat Furman. And then I think 
Uh, they'll probably struggle with maybe a San Diego State or a Charleston, whoever wins that game. Um, and then also every single night, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday in the first round, we're doing a reaction show. Myself and Kyle Mann, he's going to be out in Los Angeles. So uh, myself, producer Kyle, Kyle Mann are going to be watching games downtown LA and then going to the studio and recording after. So it's going to be a fun Have week. you ever met Kyle Mann? Not in person, no. Just just over the internet. Do you know he's seven foot three? I did not. I did not. I did not. I no, did not he really know is. He's seven okay, foot three. Great. Yeah, he played in college. He's huge. Yeah, yeah. Good for. I mean, look, I love the bigs, Bill. You know this. <laughs> I tried to convince House once that Warren Sharp didn't have legs because every time we use Warren Sharp in a video, you can only see him from the torso up. So like, yeah, dude. Warren Sharp doesn't have legs. House wasn't biting. It's hard. When you only see people on Zoom, you can kind of predict any sort of reality for anyone. They don't right. know where People are usually shocked doing. when they see me. They're like, they think I'm like five foot six. So I, uh, you know, no, I enjoy you're that. No, you're a sneaky tall guy. <laughs> there you go. Right. Yeah. People are shocked when they see nephew Kyle without a cigarette. They're like, what, right. what happened? I didn't know <laughs> yeah. what's going on. He's got the patch um, on his neck. <laughs> I know, uh, I know nobody's more excited for the return of you and March Madness at the ringer than, than Kyle. So uh, he's tearing yeah. up right now as we're talking. All right, Tate, good to have you back. Good to see you. Happy birthday, my friend. Yeah, perfect. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game. And they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right? First half of the first game. I don't know. West Coast time. That's usually about 5 o'clock, 5.30. Perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside. LDA 21 and up. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Summer is all about fun vacations, but I know that being away from home can be stressful. So many things can happen. That's why I like to recommend Simply Safe, award-winning security that can help give you peace of mind when you're away. The only thing you should worry about while you're on vacation is having too much fun. Having my home, it's great. Couldn't work better. I think Simply Safe is the best because it comes with a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras, sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more. It's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. It's given me, my family, many others, real peace of mind. I'm waiting to have it too. Try it out. A 60-day money-back guarantee. No contracts right now. Get 20% off any Simply Safe system with Fast Protect Monitoring at simplysafe.com slash BS. That is Simply Safe with two eyes. Simplysafe.com slash BS. There's no safe like Simply Safe. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid, featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh, my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford, or its affiliates. All right, my friend Brian Gerwitz is here. He used to work for the WWE once upon a time. Wrote a book. What's the name of the book? There's just one problem. Uh, true tales from the former one-time seventh most powerful person in WWE. It came out a few months ago, and we were looking for the perfect time to do a pod because you did the circuit. You were you were around. You were bouncing around. I was like, nah, I want I want a fresh 
fresh, Brian, this is a perfect topic for us to dive into. And then we can talk about the book after. Yeah. Gambling legally on WWE stuff, which was a story that broke last week. And most people's reaction was that's impossible. There's no way they can do this. But then some of the reporting, including some of the reporting Dave Meltzer did on it, it seems like they're really kicking the tires on this and trying to figure out how they can do it, how they can figure out sports entertainment, both ahead of time and in the moment so that you could figure out the structure of a storyline, but then not what's going to happen in the actual match until the tail end. You were behind the scenes forever with them. Does this seem realistic to you? Um, it wouldn't seem realistic when I was there. Um, but I have a lot of faith in Nick Khan, you know, obviously we both know really well. And I think the structure is just different now. Um, you know, you said Dave Meltzer reporting on it. The fact that Dave Meltzer exists is a reason why it might not work, you know, <laughs> right. That, that's like, you know, he's antithetical to the whole concept of can the wrestlers or whoever the quote unquote sources are just shut their mouths for a little bit. Like everything that we did back then, it wasn't, it was possible to do secret stuff back when, when I was there, we kept John Cena returning, you know, when he returned to the Royal Rumble, I think it was 2008. That was a secret. We kept Eric Bischoff when we named him, you know, GM in 2002. That was a secret. When, when Rock returned to host WrestleMania, like you really, really need to put in the work to keep it a secret. Uh, or you just really, truly need to crack down on people, you know, and, and most people aren't like this in terms of like just blabbing, but like every so often you go online and you see here are the plans for this and here are the plans for that. And sometimes I know it's, it's hot garbage. And sometimes, you know, unfortunately there's like legitimate truth behind it. So it really, really needs to, uh, you know, they could experiment, but it, it, it really needs to be done um, with a level of intensity that they've never really done before. In my opinion. So two things that two things that strike me as this seems impossible. One is just even if you only the two people in the actual match and a couple other people knew what the actual outcome was going to be to plan a whole match, but then only have the two people know what's going to happen like in the last minute of the match. That just seems hard. Um, <laughs> and then uh, especially with like whatever their extended circle are is. And then the other thing with the you're planning a storyline for some, with two people, whether it's a feud or whatever, you know, that's a multi-month arc. If you're doing it correctly, you're putting real thought into how you set it up, how you set up the animosity, whatever the angle is, how are you going to execute it over weeks and weeks and weeks? And maybe it crests at SummerSlam or WrestleMania or whatever. And to say you have no idea how that's going to play out three months earlier is seems like the opposite of how wrestling works. So when you, when you hear it laid out like that, does it just seem like completely ludicrous? Uh, yeah, like that, it does seem completely ludicrous because, um, so, you know, the beauty of being able to craft a storyline is your ability to change it at a moment's notice if need be, or if the audience isn't reacting a certain way, or if, uh, you know, if, if, if something seems like blatantly obvious and you have the ability to change it on the fly, um, and also keep it tight knit. And also you're not just booking or writing for that day of, you're writing for, you know, well past that. Um, but that being said, you know, if they could, if they could experiment, you know, and maybe, maybe it starts with props, you know, like how many, how many kickouts are there going to be, how long the match is going to be, 
certain things that like you, you really, you know, it's not going to be listed on a sheet somewhere in the producers meeting backstage where someone can get a hold of it and then call whoever they're going to call and say so, um, you know, and, and, and put caps on it, put limits on it. There's like experimental things that you could just try it out that hopefully can work and not, you know, change the whole structure where now you're locked into a finish that you really want to change, but you can't because of, you know, the online gambling aspect of it. That's where you really get potentially screwed or in trouble. Yeah, it seems like that you could have length of the match is an easy one. Number of kickouts is an easy one. And that one you can control in the last minute. You could go tell somebody, hey, this match could be five minutes. We're going to go under. Or it could just be the natural outcome of it. You could also do like you laid out. There could just be one match in a card where nobody knows what's going to happen in the match. Maybe that's the one you could bet on FanDuel where it's it's like, all right, here we go. It's Sami Zayn against... I don't know, uh, Kevin Owens. And only two people who know what's, how this match is going to end are those two. And you could bet on this and everybody else is shut out. And they just try it and see if it works. I also think it, there's a misconception that if they do this, it could be, oh, I'm going to bet $1,000 on this with inside info. The, the, the actual number of, of uh, that you're allowed to bet, I would assume, would be really small. It might be like a $25 maximum. Something it really, like that. it should be capped. I mean, they, they, this has been going around for a while. I mean, it was over in, I think, Europe and everything, even when I was there. And, and yeah. I, left, I left in 2015, um, you know, and there's always like, you know, no one on this writing team would, would dare to consider it for not only just the moral reasons, but also practical reasons. Like, are you really going to risk your job to make a few bucks on a $25 bet? I mean, that just seems crazy. But yeah, I think, you know, it's one thing and, and people are, you know, thinking, oh, okay, so the entire card is going to be available to bet. Like that's, that shouldn't be the way. And I don't think it is going to be the way that they kick it off. If they do it, yeah, it should be a single, you know, <laughs> whatever the, whatever the version of the Mountain Dew pitch black, you know, special sponsor and green matches. Um, they should pick it for that. They should keep it really tight lid. They should have a lot of props. It shouldn't just be who wins or who loses um, and see how that works and then slowly expand from there versus, okay, WrestleMania nights one and two, you know, it, it shouldn't be like the NCAA tournament where you could bet everything and anything right off the bat because that could potentially, I think, you know, be disastrous. How many times did Vince change the big plan before a match when you were there, like at the last possible second was like, oh, I've thought about this and we're actually going to do this instead. How many times did Vince not change the plan? <laughs> That's the question. Right. I mean, the plans changed constantly. Like you're in a, you got to have everything laid out. Some things stayed as is. Sometimes you're in a production meeting, you know, before the, uh, the night unfolds, you're minding your own business. For me, I'm like reading the show, presenting it to the people. The people being, you know, the backstage producers, the agents, most people know how that kind of, you know, works now. And then all it takes is for one person, because that's the thing with Vince, you know, he will accept ideas from anyone and everyone. Um, and there, there are certain people like, you know, it'd be like, you know, most of these, their ideas are terrible when they raise their hand, but one out of 30 times, it's really, really good. So why would I ever, you know, put a stop to that? And all it takes is for one person to go, well, what if we did it this way? And if it strikes as fancy, then the domino effect happens and then everything changes. So 
yeah, it's, you know, when I first heard about this and it's got to be locked in, again, this is conjecture and stuff I'm reading on the internet. So who knows if it's even true? Um, but, you know, the idea of like something being locked in and locked in for months is so antithetical to the world of wrestling and to WWE uh, because everything changed. You know, at the end of the day, the best idea wins out. And we used to have a saying, you know, nothing, nothing officially happens until they step through the curtain. Um, and even then it could change. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, refs have earpieces. Uh, they could, someone could whisper something and it could be on the fly. Give me an example of a really memorable moment when something changed at like the 11 hour and 59 and a half minute mark of what you thought was going to happen. I mean, I know, I know there were WrestleMania matches, uh, one very, very prominent one with the rock that, uh, that didn't change, but day of it almost changed. And there was, a Oh, big I know this story. I'll tell this story then. Okay. This was, this was the Hulk Hogan decided he didn't want to go over to the rock. Right. Okay. So yeah. So that is known in some circles. Then. Yeah. I th- I, that might be a relatively known story, but yeah, they were planning this whole thing to Hulk was going to lose and get over, but it was going to be great for the rock. And then in the last second, Hulk's like, I don't know, I yeah, know if I'm going to do this. Well, well, yeah. So that was a meeting, uh, and and that was a whole thing day of. And then I I remember, you know, I just like innocently showed up with Rock to WrestleMania 30 to do the big, you know, work on the big segment with him and Hogan and Austin, to which I believe Hogan was kept in the dark even before going through the curtain. Didn't even know because you know, hey, word gets out, brother, and then one person right. tells another person, and then everybody knows Austin and Rock are coming out. Um, and that was when I was casually, you know, walking by and then was told by someone of, uh, hey, the streak's ending tonight. Like, what? Mm. And, you know, I pulled one of the lead writers off to the side to tell him and he didn't even know about it. So I think that was definitely, you know, a monumental decision that was not planned months in advance. Um, I think anyone could tell you like that was, you know, that was probably that would probably be the most biggest example of something that was probably decided right up until the last second. Yeah. And poor Undertaker didn't he talked about it in his podcast. I don't think he knew either because he's basically concussed early in that match. And I don't think he remembers. I don't think to this day he remembers probably the last two thirds of it, which I'm sure, you know, we're been working on this Vince McMahon thing for a long time for uh, this documentary series we're doing. The the amount, the chair shots and all that stuff from the late 90s, early 2000s is insane to look back on. It's almost like when you watch those old football videos from like the 1990s and the 2000s and you just see these wide receivers just getting crushed over the middle and it stands out way more now because it just doesn't happen anymore. And it was the same thing back then where it was, the, the chair shot was, I would say one of the three most important kind of tools from that era for like five years during that hardcore era. You were, you were there for at least some of it. Yeah, I was there and it was, it was treated like a spot, you know, we'll do the chair shot here and we'll do that. And and you're just casually like tossing that about, but you know, th- there certainly wasn't the level of attention and the awareness of how damaging and and you would you know it seems silly to say now in 2023 like how could you not know that a chair shot no, to the people head didn't happened? know it was just a fact yeah. yeah it was crazy and then you think about you know all the you know you look back on the rock and mankind and royal rumble of 1999 and all the famous you know chair shot things and then you have 
you know, a section of wrestlers who take pride in not putting their hands up and, you know, and that, and then you have, you know, I remember Triple H uh, would always put his hands up and his reaction backstage is like, hey, if someone's attacking me with a chair for real, I'm putting my hands up. That's what I would do <laughs> right. in a situation like that. Why is that seen as anything, you know, not, you know, taking it like he's supposed to take it. But it's, yeah, it's crazy to look back on now. And, and thankfully, you know, that, that awareness now exists and they don't do that stuff anymore. But yeah, it's, it's not. Well, that, you think about, think about back to the nineties. I follow this Instagram account that is, it's, I think it's called like that time in ECW or something like that. And it's just, they'll just show these random ECW clips. They're insane. ECW, and this is like early, mid, probably like that 93 to 98 stretch. New Jack does some of the craziest shit, like shit that I don't even think most people even know happened. And there was this run there, um, really from as ECW started to take off and then WWE started to re kind of respond to it and try to up the stakes with the, with the stuff they were doing. And then obviously Mick Foley going through the cage was the culmination of that. But, and then even Shane McMahon, some of the stuff he did in the two thousands, but, um, there was just this bar that kept getting raised. And then all of a sudden the bar was at some place that just didn't make sense anymore. And people, the, some of the stunts and the gimmicks and, um, the things that people tried there for about a four year span is really crazy to look back on. And I'm glad Instagram exists. I get to remember it because I can't believe it happened. Yeah. But I, I mean, I remember sitting in those meetings and being like, we've really, you know, we booked ourselves into a corner here because we can't even, there was a discussion. I remember at one point saying, you know, we can't even really do hell in a cell matches anymore because people are just going to sit on their hands waiting for the fall off the cage spot. I mean, like we did that, you know, right. I think it was 2000 with Rikishi. Um, in the eight man hell in a cell where, you know, there was a flatbed truck. It's crazy to think about now. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll do the flatbed truck gimmick and it'll come out and it'll fall off the roof backwards. And like, and same thing with the hardcore title. It was like, how, I remember Vince even saying like, like short of um, like somebody, you know, throwing somebody off of a roof or something. I mean, like we did a spot with Kane and Shane where I think Kane fell backwards into a flaming dumpster or something like that on fire. And you have a little bit of flexibility because he's supposed to be Friday the 13th and Jason and all that. But, yeah. you know, you really, really like if that went on, that's why the hardcore title was disbanded because it's like we can't up the ante anymore without it being completely ridiculous, much less unsafe. Um, we got to go back to basic storytelling and what brought us back to the dance as far as just being invested in characters and personal issues and that kind of thing. Because otherwise it's just going to be complete garbage, you know, dreck and, and horribleness. Yeah. That, that kind of happened in the Jackass movie franchise too. They basically had to just stop for like 15 years, yeah. let everybody, uh, regroup. Were you buying that? Vince was totally gone when he was supposed to be gone. And now it seems like he's back, but it's unclear how back he is. But then he was at a show recently and it definitely seems like he went away. And it definitely seems like Triple H was kind of became the guy deciding basically what happens, match to match, storyline, stuff like that. But did you think Vince was coming back at one point or do you think he was gone? I kind of just sit back and just watch it unfold. And also it's, you know, as you coined the phrase, the Tyson zone, where pretty right. much anything can happen and you'd believe it. Um, I do believe he was, when he was gone, gone, he was gone. 
Um, you know, it's based on everything that I've, I've heard. And, and, you know, if he's coming back to negotiate the sale of, you know, from a business standpoint, you know, that makes sense. Um, yeah. And of course, <laughs> I found it very amusing, you know, when he was uh, backstage in, in Boston for Cena or what have you, because then like the mustache pick became the equivalent of like trying to find Bigfoot. Like what right. is, where is the legitimate picture of Vince with a mustache? And there was like 18 different versions and all of them are like, aha, this is the real one. And then five minutes later, it was like, nope, this was taken in 2017 and all that kind of thing. Um, it, uh, that's, that's really, you know, without obviously getting into the serious issues with Vince, um, you yes. know, the mustache pick is <laughs> fascinating in terms of, uh, you know, when will it actually surface in real life? It's, you know, there was rumors and I didn't, I didn't believe it because it seemed like they were so stable. And then we had that moment when Stephanie quit again. Yeah. And, uh, and then now it's just, I, I still can't decide. And I talked about this with Ariel a couple of weeks ago. Like, I still don't know how much of this is a work and how much is this is real because WrestleMania is coming up in LA soon. And it's just, as somebody who's grown up with WWE my whole life, as you have, I'm just conditioned to be suspicious of everything, yeah. right? I, I never know when, when real and work, when they're separate. And this is another case of that. It's just like, okay, I would, so this starts in January, right when everything ramps up, usually leading with the culmination of WrestleMania. And this is when all this drama starts again. And now we're in mid-March and WrestleMania is a couple weeks away. Now there's a mustache pick. And I don't know, I'm just suspicious. Isn't, is, is that fair to be suspicious? As far as him coming back and being involved in creative right around, you know, WrestleMania and the most. Yeah, and just this being a little more thought out than maybe they're making it seem. I can't imagine, like, I, I don't know, just based on all the stuff that always happened on the fly, like you would come into work and then a bombshell would drop, like on the creative team even. It's like, you know, Heyman and I are arguing with each other one day and then we're called into Vince uh, Stephanie's office thinking, like, oh, we're going to get reamed out for arguing and being unprofessional. And then she's like, oh, by the way, we're bringing back Vince Russo. And, uh, you know, he's going to be running the entire uh, creative <laughs> team. And, uh, you guys are going to report to him. Like, wait, what? Like, I, I don't know if it's, I don't think it's that sophisticated and played out. Like, I could see, you know, Vince, you know, getting whatever advice from his legal team saying, yeah, now's the time to come back to negotiate the sale. If you told me, he was looking over all the scripts and giving feedback to Triple H and Triple H only. I'd believe it if you told me, yeah, he is under, it's tempting, but he's under strict, strict orders and self-imposed orders to not interfere and to strictly do it from a business sense. I would say, yeah, okay, I believe that too. I, I don't really, I don't know, but I don't think it was like, all right, I don't think our the planning is, you know, that, that sophisticated to come back during WrestleMania season and have it play out. I think it just happened. My personal opinion is things just happen. So my theory was that, you know, he was sitting on the side, things were going great without him. And at some point he was so used to being part of the action and the competitive side of him was like, I, I got to come back. This is going too well. And then you text me and you're like, there's no way that's true. That's not how he thinks he could care less. Why? What made you think that? Uh, because he's always, he, he's never cared about like the quote unquote internet opinion 
or the, you know, the, the gossip and the hearsay. And, you know, it's like, even if, you know, the, the quote unquote Triple H era is universally praised and what have you, he's going to think about it the way he thinks about it. It doesn't matter if, you know, we used to have, I'll, I'll sidetrack, we used to have post-ROM meetings at the end of every Monday night. It was horrific because you do this show, you put your heart into it, and then you just want to go to the next town and prepare and sleep a little bit until it's time for SmackDown. But instead, you know, 1130, we'd gather in Vince's office and go over the show, uh, you know, segment by segment. Um, and then sometimes, you know, the executive producer would come in with the quote unquote studio feedback and they would say what they're going to say. And, and at the end of the day, it didn't matter if like the crowd was like roaring or if the performers were feeling good. Vince feels the way he feels about a segment, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. no, this was crap or no, this was good. Like, this is how he feels. And, you know, other people rarely can change their mind, uh, could change his mind. Um, you know, and, and, but, but he is like, he doesn't, he blocks out that noise. He doesn't really care what the, uh, scuttlebutt is. It's, I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, it took so long for, for Daniel Bryan at some point to like finally break into that main event scene. Because despite like, oh, yeah, okay, so he's getting support, blah, blah, blah. But this is how I feel about him. Uh, and then ultimately that changed. But it wasn't because Vince wants to get over with the, uh, you know, the internet audience or whatever. Or, or he feels, you know, he's going to feel what he's going to feel. And he's going to make his decision the way he feel, uh, you know, when he makes his decision. But he doesn't, he doesn't, he blocks out the noise, in my opinion. Yeah, he definitely like had a type for the type of people he wanted to push. And it's ironic because over and over again, the smaller guys were some of the people that really carried the WWE over the last 25 years, right? Even even go back to the Shawn Michaels era. It wasn't like Shawn Michaels was a big guy. But um, I think over and over again, it was almost like those those types of guys had to prove themselves to Vince. You stopped working for him, what was it, 2015? Yeah, 2012 full-time. And then yeah. I was consultant for three years until mid 2015. And that now you're working with the with the Rock who you've been with is is when you look back at that whole run of working for WWE, is it do you does it is it like one big blur or does the stuff stand out? Was that was that what made you want to put everything down in a book? Like what were the reasons? It, it kind of it, it was a big blur, you know. Now looking back on it, um, you know, at the time you're just so caught up in the, in the, in the action and the fact that you like have no, whatever time. the next thing is we're going here, yeah. we're going to this next time we have this coming up and you're just always going forward, forward, forward. There's no time to reflect exactly because at the, you know, and, and it's a different structure now with two live shows and pay-per-views on Saturday and you know, Saudi pay-per-views and all that kind of thing. But like when I was there, it was Monday, Tuesday on the road. Uh, every week, 52 weeks a year. I think there was one year in 2002 where, where you know, Christmas and New Year's fell on a Monday and we just said, screw it, we'll do a best of. Um, that was one time in 12 years. <laughs> Otherwise, it's like, my God, where wouldn't you want to be at Christmas Eve on Monday Night Raw in Toledo, in Kansas Ohio? City. Perfect. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, everything happened. Like, you would have no time to reflect back because... You know, that was the famous Vincism that we would, uh, even after a great pay-per-view, uh, you know, his, his motto would always be, um, that was great. And we have the privilege of doing it all over again tonight. That's why I always hated the WrestleMania after party. 
Because there would be like every year, I don't know how it works now with two nights, but like every year there'd be a WrestleMania after party and you'd have all these executives from Stanford in and all taking like these deep breaths and like, oh, can you believe it's over? And so like, you got raw the next night. Yeah. yeah I have a production meeting like in, in hours from now. <laughs> I got like, and it's a huge, critical, important show. There is no, it's over. It's 52 weeks a year. Um, and it gets, uh. you know, like just, just so much. You, you always, I, I couldn't contemplate like i look back now and like how did i travel to two different cities sometimes three different cities a week every week 52 weeks a year minus three or four weeks of vacation which i damn well made sure i took um you know not everybody takes it like um oh you know like i might maybe i might uh you know if i'm out of sight someone might take my spot whatever i never felt right. that way i was like please Give me more vacation. I, get, I don't care. Just take my spot. I don't. I don't care about that. Um, Vince is like, uh, heard, heard you're taking vacation again. <laughs> he was going away. But I mean, I, I read once there was something online once saying like, uh, you know, Brian Gewertz skewed his vacation uh, because he didn't want someone to step in and take. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like yeah. that, that is completely fabricated. I would take double the vacation back then, you know, if I could, um, you know, you want to take pride in your work and you want to keep going and everything, but it is exhausting mentally, physically, you know, just, just pure exhaustion. Did you guys always know where the leaks were coming from? No, I, I mean, you always speculated, but I don't, I don't know where they are now. I mean, I saw something online, you know, speculating about, you know, this big women's angle and what's going to happen after mania. And it just, it always blows my mind that there would, I mean, I get like, yes, if you're a local promoter and you want the world to know who security was in a giant footage where security broke up a fight because they're your local wrestlers and you want their names in a dirt sheet or something. Back in my yeah. day, it was who the Druids were when The Undertaker would come out. Um, that's fine. Or if you're like a working at a arena and someone you know, foolishly leaves their run sheet behind. It's one of the reasons why Vince used to make us all put our name, sign our name on the top of every script and or run sheet. Uh, because if it gets, you know, someone finds it, then you know who dropped it. Right. Pat Patterson was always dropping scripts every five seconds, not maliciously. It was just, you know, Pat being Pat. But, you know, there's like certain, like, I understand, I don't agree with it. I understand certain wrestlers like, uh, I'm not getting the spot I want, or I'm doing this stupid creative. I feel stupid, and I need the world to know that you know I decided to say something against it, and mm. I think it's dumb. But I, I guess I under sort of understand the logic behind that. I don't understand office workers or writers or producers, and I don't think it's I don't think it's the vast majority. I don't think it's the majority. I don't. I think it's a handful, if anything. But to sabotage your own business and your own storylines and everything else that comes with it for the gratification of, I don't know, a bunch of newsletter readers of some kind um, just makes no sense to me. I mean, I, I know there are like former writers who blast the quote unquote dirt sheets um, and make it like a holy war, war as far as like, you know, putting them on notice. And yeah, I've, I've seen stuff in dirt sheets and, and some of them, some of it's accurate. Some of it is completely inaccurate, but I've never really put the blame on them. I've always blamed, you know, the, whoever it is who is calling them sources with, with actual information 
I think that's just like, it's just really just, just disgraceful, in my opinion. Like you should take yeah. more pride in your work. Um, and then the other thing is, is that the, some of the stuff comes out, people, it's the audience too, in my opinion. It's like the audience reading it should know a little bit better and take it with a grain of salt. Like I'll, I'll give uh, the, the big example, you know, from recent times is how like Dave Meltzer, for instance, you know, a week after he admittedly had to retract something, you know, that he had printed false information and he was up front and admitted it. But then the next week, a quote unquote source tells him, well, The Rock's not going to make it to WrestleMania because he feels he doesn't have time to get into match shape. Yeah. Like, now, I know that there is, <laughs> that is uh, on, on in and of itself, not the case. That is not the reason whether it happens or doesn't happen. Um, I know it's a, it's a line, but then it just took a life on its own where all of a sudden everyone reading it on the internet and Twitter takes it as fact to the point where Roman goes on The Tonight Show and tells Jimmy Fallon, hey, I understand Rock made a statement saying he doesn't have time to get into ring shape. And I'm watching this like, what? What statement? Show me the statement. There is no statement. This is a quote that some stooge reported <sighs> to a wrestling you know, insider newsletter of some kind. And now it's just like written in granite in stone. This is the case. That's the stuff that just drives me nuts and always has. Uh, I think Rock is the best total package wrestler I've ever seen. If you're saying athleticism, in-ring ability, mic skills, sense of humor, ability to ad-lib in the moment, whatever character created. I think I think he's number one for me and you don't have to answer this because you work with him. Who's number two for you? If, if we take the rock off the table, who was the best kind of total package person for you? The one who brought the most things to the table uh, most fun to work with, do a program with, most fun for the other wrestlers to wrestle with? Like, who do you think it was? Well, I mean, that answer is, it's kind of complicated because who do I think is number two or or arguably number one in terms of just, you know, total package and everything? Definitely Steve Austin. Uh, is it Was it fun to work with Steve Austin? <laughs> no. <laughs> It wasn't fun to work with Steve Austin because Steve is wired differently than the rock yeah. and the people. Steve didn't. Yeah, but I don't, I don't, as a fan, I don't care about that. I just care what the product yeah. is, right? So from a product standpoint, you're probably right. Before he broke his neck. I don't, I don't think after he broke his neck, he was probably a different kind of a wrestler. But the the early, the early mid-90s uh, or the mid-late 90s Austin was unbelievable. Steve, and even now, like you never write anything for Steve. That's not how he prefers it. You you tell Steve yeah. what's gonna happen. Steve walks off and gets you know gets it going in his head. Um, but John Cena is, is is great to work with as well. I mean, Cena is the total package. You can't deny he's an assassin on the microphone. You know, you just saw it with Austin Theory. Yeah. that whatever. I think uh, I think Reigns has gotten really good at it too. I think his on mic stuff is so much better than it was five years ago. Oh yeah, I mean, once they finally pulled the trigger and allowed him to turn heel, and so he doesn't have to be this smiling. I got to be the next John Cena. I've got to, you know, the infamous suck, suffer and succotash promo that he said. Which whenever, yeah. whenever a wrestler is is, uh, you know, starts a promo with, let me tell you a little story. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> this is coming straight out of Vince's yeah. mind. Uh, and sometimes it works and oftentimes it doesn't because it's just not what that character is feeling. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, look, over the years for me, I mean, working with Cena, Kurt Angle, Chris Jericho, uh, Trish and Mickey James, um, Booker T, incredible. Uh, Kurt Angle, incredible. Mm. Um, you know, when I was working with Booker T and Goldust, it was like not showing up to work. That w- It was like, that was like work changed into camp as far as like, okay, what do we get to do today? What, what offsite do we get to go on and what crazy things we have to do? That's when, you know, from a, from a writing standpoint, that's when it's the most fun versus, you know, hearing Vince or whatever, you know, dictate a 20 minute promo and have to convince a talent. <laughs> like, screamy you know, eye. Do. One of the great things about wrestling is when the guy can still take off out of nowhere, which just happened to Sami Zayn you know, over the last nine months, just never in a million years would have predicted it. And it all leads to this Montreal match where it seems like he's going to get the title. And I think in the Vince era, when Vince was running stuff, he probably would have changed his mind and said, oh, screw it, let's give it to him. Um, in this case, they they held firm. Reigns keeps the title. Reigns has been a bad guy champ now. This is the best run we have ever seen from a bad guy champ since the uh, days of superstar Billy Graham, which were before I was even wrestling. And I think he only had the title for maybe a year and a half. It's so much harder to be a bad guy champ, right? Because they always want to have the person at the end of the card who's either the good guy or he's about to be a good guy or it's the Andre the Giant type who's, you know, everybody loves him and maybe he doesn't have the belt, but he's Undertaker was like this for a while too. The bad guy champ is just really hard to pull off. And now we're over a thousand days with it. Did you ever think that would happen? Um, I didn't, I never thought it would happen like this organically and this successfully. I mean, like we had in my, in my day, you know, we had triple H and evolution. Um, and some of that stuff worked really well. And some of it was, you know, I, I could tell the audience is like, Oh my God, literally anything but this. Um, because until yeah. it got to Dave, you know, kind of wanting to overtake Triple H and Triple H wanting to be his friend, but keep him down. It really wasn't as dynamic a story. It was more of just like, who's the baby face who's going to, it's like, it was the reverse, a reverse Hogan in a way. It was like, who's the baby face who's going to put up a fight, but ultimately lose to Triple H. Um, and then, you know, obviously the changing of the guard came with Batista. Um, and it was tried before that with Randy Orton, but it was rushed in my opinion. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing with Roman is it, it cooked, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't even about his opponent. It was about the dynamic with the Usos, um, and Heyman and ultimately Sammy and, and everything else. Um, you know, I'll, I don't know if I'm speaking out of school. I will, I will say, I will say this, this is what I was told, um, that, uh, Survivor Series, um, not this past Survivor Series, but the Survivor Series before, it was, we were doing Red Notice in a product integration in the pay-per-view. And this thing, you know, as far as like, there was this like magical golden egg that, um, if, if you recall, it was a much heavily reviled night of creative. Everybody hated the angle as far as this golden egg right. that, Austin Theory found and Sami Zayn, uh, you know, ratted him out and everything else like that. The original creative for that, I won't go into, but just trust me, it was much, 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 much worse. <laughs> it wasn't going <laughs> right. to fly. When I discussed it with Dwayne, I was like, yeah, that's got to that's gotta change. Um, and then I think Vince and the team came up with this egg thing, which most people uh, in watching it were, you know, didn't like it for whatever reason. That's fine. 
But I was told that during those vignettes where Sammy uh, kind of stooged off Austin Theory and wanted him to be punished and then was put in a situation where, you know, whatever the creative was, that that was the turning point as far as Vince going. Interesting. Hey, Sammy is, uh, I mean, I, I always liked him. So I think we should like look at that egg angle now a little bit differently and, you know, perhaps give props to the golden magical hundred million dollar egg. Um, because with, I mean, listen, talent always rises to the top and Sammy is amazing and would have risen to the top anyway. But I just thought it was yeah. funny that like, yeah, it was those vignettes where, uh, Vince really took notice as far as Sammy as a performer. I'm Jeez. Like, right. You never know. You, you never know. It's, exactly. it, it's always one thing with some of these guys sometimes. Like for Stone Cold, it was that, you know, it was it was the the click. Last match, Vince gets mad at Triple H. All of a sudden, Stone Cold's going to win King of the Ring. And then his career takes off and he has like the big match. And I think that's what happened. But it was, it was sometimes yeah, it was Triple you, H was you supposed just, to be King of the Ring. And then the curtain got punished. Out. He got punished. Yeah, Kurt, the Kurt called the click. Yeah, and yeah. Put him, right, we'll give it um, to this. Uh, we'll give it a Stone Cold, I guess. And then, yeah, he becomes the biggest thing in the history of the business. So your book, it is called. There's just one problem. You can get it now. Get it for, get it for whatever father figure you have in life for Father's Day when that's coming up. Read it before WrestleMania. Brian, good to see you as always. Good luck. Uh, good luck with the book as we head toward Father's Day. Bill, thanks a lot. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, perfect, perfect time to read during WrestleMania season. All right, that's it for the podcast. Thanks to KOC. Thanks to Tate. Thanks to Brian. Thanks to Steve Cerruti and Kyle Creighton for producing. I will see you on this feed on Thursday with a very special gimmick podcast. Can't wait. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.